every time I talk about faith and politics, I do, I sit there and I think to myself, why am I doing this? Like, who wants to take on this particular topic? Because you guys know how contested it is. You feel the, the rancor and the division out there. We're all feeling that. At the same time, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to address these issues with you because they are a significant area of our discipleship as Christians. How do I follow Jesus there? Right? It's not, I mean, we, sometimes we think you got, you know, got your faith and over here you have politics. Well, no, politics is part of Christian obedience. It's under that umbrella. How do we follow Jesus there? So I'm, I'm grateful to think with you from the Bible and uh, uh, just think of things that we've, we've, we, we want to understand as Christians together with you. So thank you for receiving me. Uh, two talks. Number one, how do we make an impact? That's your left page. And then, what do we do with church members who think crazy things politically? That is to say, who disagree with me. What do I do with them? I know none of you ever think that. You're always understanding, right? We're all understanding. So that's the second talk, okay? The first talk, how do we make a political impact? I'm giving it a how-to framework, but let me kind of pull back the curtain, what am I actually doing? What I'm actually going to try to do is to help us rethink faith and politics. How do we understand it biblically? But I'm I'm putting it in a a practical how-to framework. Why is it, though, that we need to rethink it? The problem that I'm concerned about and that I see is fairly prevalent is how easily we as believers get co-opted by this party, that party, this nation, that nation, this movement, that movement. You see this in the Bible, don't you? Satan is like, hey, Jesus, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you bow down. What was he trying to do? He's trying to co-opt Jesus, enlist Jesus, that is to say, for his purposes. Or you think about the two disciples arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom, Jesus, can I get a sit on your right? Can I sit on your left? Well, what are they doing? They're trying to co-opt, enlist Jesus for their cause, right? Uh, again, and it, what, what do the people do on Palm Sunday when he goes into Jerusalem? You know, they're putting down the palm branches, think he's going to overturn Rome. What are they trying to do? They're trying to co-opt, enlist Jesus for their worldly cause. And friends, our hearts naturally go to the things of this world. And we naturally just think, okay, well, this is really important. I got to get on this team or I got to get on that team. It's almost like Peter picking up the sword in the garden, going like, I'm going after it. And Jesus is like, hold on. We're doing something different here, Peter. And friends, if you get anything out of tonight, tomorrow, as, as we come back, I hope it's that. We're doing something different here, saints. Okay. There's, there's usefulness in political engagement, but we're finally about something different. For instance, here's, here's one way I think we tend to get co-opted by, by, by what it means to be an American. I think when we go to the Bible, as Americans, we tend to let our principles of Americanism determine how we read the Bible instead of letting the Bible determine what it means to be an American. Here's an example. Uh, what would you say is one of the favorite political verses for many American Christians? Shout it out. Well, that's a big one. 
if my people will humble themselves and hear my voice, surely I'll bless them or I'm remembering something like that. That's a big one. What's another one? Yeah. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. That, y'all heard that one, right? I think American Christians love that one. Why? Well, it sounds like what we do in the, in the country. Separation of church and state, separation of politics and religion, right? And if, if I had a whiteboard here, it's almost like you have two circles, Caesar's things, government, politics, elections, Caesar's things. And over here you have a, another circle, God's things, church, Bible, worship, salvation, Right? And in our American separate politics and religion framework, mental framework, we have these two separate circles, Caesar's things, God's things, right? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, think about the context. Jesus says, somebody uh, bring me a coin. Bring him a coin. And he says, okay, whose, whose image, whose inscription is on it? Caesar's, they say. But of course, any Jew sitting there listening to Jesus would have known that if, if Caesar's image is on the coin, whose image is Caesar in? God's. Do you really think Jesus is saying, hey, Caesar's got domain over here and God's got nothing to do with it? Just a few chapters later, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Even before that, he says, hey, Pilate, you'd have no authority were it not given to you from above. In other words, Jesus is not giving us two circles, Caesar's things, God's things. What he's doing is he's giving us one big circle, God's things. And inside of that, a slightly smaller smaller circle, Caesar's things. God's over all of it. Make no mistake. But when we go to the text, and we don't let the text determine us, but we let our Americanness determine the text, we tend to misconstrue these things. And so that's why I'm saying, hey, folks, okay, let's, let's see if we can think about faith and politics as it were from the ground up from the Bible. Right? How should we approach this topic of the, of the intersection of faith and politics? What would that look like? I think the temptation for many of us when we think about making a political impact is, is you come with a bigger gun, right? Okay, my, my team's got to win. Got to bring a bigger gun. Got to win. And that's the way politics in this world works. British versus the colonialists. North versus South. Cowboys versus Indians, red versus blue, Republicans versus Democrats. Jump in, pick your team, bring a bigger gun. But then what happens when Christians get involved? Well, Christians jump in and they think, I think I'm with that team and I'm with that team. And then we hear a little sermon about being salt and light and being loving. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to jump in on a team, but I got to be nice about it, right? But I'm going to stand for truth and justice, but I'm on this team. Of course, other Christians are on this team. So this is the Christian team. No, this is the Christian team. What do you get? You get Christ against Christ, right? Is that really what we should be doing? 
And I'm saying, no, that's when we've become co-optive and we need to rethink all of this. Okay, so how do we make a political impact, saints? How do we do it? Six things, all right, for note takers. Six things. Number one, repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. Maybe not where you expected me to begin. Jonathan, are you just talking about religion there? Well, remember what I said. It's all God's things. And if I want to get it right in this circle of Caesar's things, I've got to start. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Who is Jesus? He's a king. And he came to establish a kingdom. Think of the very beginning of Mark's gospel. Verse 1, Mark 1.14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What's a kingdom? It's a political thing, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means you've repented and believed in the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news that God created all things. And as the creator of all things, he's the ruler and the king of all things. We created us good to serve him and to proclaim his name as the king. We, however, decided to push him off the throne and put ourselves on the throne instead. And in so doing, as these insurrectionists, we earned his just penalty because he's good and he must punish evil. The good news is, that even though you and I deserved death, we deserve God's punishment. The King Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, came, lived the life that you and I should have lived, died the death on the cross that you and I should die, paying the penalty that you and I deserve for our sins. And then He rose again, defeating our enemies of sin and death, and proved that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and said, repent, turn away from your sins, get off the throne, and follow after me, right? That is the good news of Christianity, and if, 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 if you're here this evening and you would not understand yourself to be a Christian, you can ignore everything else I'm about to say for the next two hours, remember that, okay? That's the most important thing, that's how we know that we can be saved and how we can know we follow after God. Now here's what follows from that. When you repent of your sins and you say, Jesus, you're king, not me, you're Lord and Savior, not me, it changes your politics dramatically and completely. Am I saying that's true because, well, I'm, you know, I'm a white evangelical and that makes me a Republican? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you are acknowledging a, a, a new king over all the other kings, a new lord over all of the other lords, and then you join an embassy of that kingdom, a local church, right? The phrase, Jesus is king, is the beginning of a Christian politics. The phrase, Jesus is king, is the very beginning of a Christian politics. Everything else in our politics should follow after that. So think about it this way. When you become a Christian, 
your identity dramatically changes. There's a number of things about you that that make you who you are. So think of me. My name is Jonathan, meaning I'm I'm the the son of Dave and Barb. I'm an American. I'm a man. Uh, I have white skin. I... uh, you know, college educated, middle class, we go down the line. The different things that the world would say, who is Jonathan? Well, they, they would point to those things about me. That, that's the stuff the U.S. Census Bureau or college applications would take an interest in. When I become a Christian, I take all of these things about me, you do the same, and we take them before King Jesus and we say, okay, King Jesus, well, I'm, I'm the son of Dave and Barb. How, how would you have me follow you as, as a leman? Okay, I'm an American. Here's my Americanness, Lord Jesus. What would you have me do with my Americanness? Okay, I'm a man. What, what does it mean to be a man, Lord Jesus? The culture is saying this. These other people are saying that. You tell me. You're king. Okay, in, in, in this country, I, I have white skin, and that means certain things. It comes with certain history. How, how would you have me use that for your glory and, and your purposes and for love of neighbor, King Jesus? Okay, I'm, I'm college educated. How would you have me use my college? I'm, I'm middle class. How would you? See, all of these things, we bring them to King Jesus, and we say, Lord, King of Kings, you define and redefine them for me. And some things he takes and refashions them and gives them back, kind of a new version. Other things he's like, nope, getting rid of that, right? Okay, I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm an independent. King Jesus, here it is. Does that, does that gotta go? You're gonna refashion? What are you gonna do? You tell me. You're king. The phrase, Jesus is king, is the beginning. As I repent of my sin, I turn away from my sin, I follow after him, that's the beginning of a new politics for you and me, friend. It's what he does. So who are you as a Christian? You are a new creation heir. You are a son or daughter of the divine king. You are a citizen of his kingdom. And that means we have to renegotiate everything else about us. It's not like there's a circle over here, my things, and a circle over here, God's things. No, all of it comes into his circle for us as believers. That's why the Bible calls us aliens and, and strangers and sojourners. All the old categories of this world don't quite fit us anymore. You know, this is what a manly man is, says the world. Well, no, actually, this is what, this is what Jesus says a man is. This is what America's all about. Well, well no, this, this is what Jesus would say we need to do with our Americanness. And on and on we could go through the different categories. And, and none of the old categories quite fitting anymore. They want to co-opt us. Remember what I said? They want to co-opt us for their purposes. And some things we'll agree with. Hey, praise God for this about being an American. This is wonderful. Let me uphold this. Yes. But these other things, no, we need to to speak honestly about this. These things with my party identity, man, I love being a part of this party, but and these are good things, and I want to continue to pursue things, these things. But okay, but, but these other things. I need to speak honestly about those other things now, right? It's not going to quite fit. The shoe doesn't quite fit, right? Uh, Listen to how 4th century Roman historian Eusebius described a 2nd century Christian named 
Sanctus. So Christian historian, 4th century, writing about a 2nd century Christian. In the year 177, when, he, when Sanctus, this 2nd century Christian, was, was going before his torturers, these, these Romans who were uh, about to, because he wouldn't repent, and become a, you know, give praise to the Roman gods. They were about to, tor- to torture him. Here's what he says. With such determination did he, did Sanctus, stand up to their onslaughts that he would not tell them his own name, race, and birthplace, or whether he was slave or free. To every question he replied in Latin, I am a Christian. This he proclaimed over and over again instead of name, birthplace, nationality. And we could add all those other categories. And everything else, he said, I am a Christian. And not another word did the heathen hear from him. The lesson here, friends, is that we need to let go of our American identity, party identity, ethnic identity, gender identity, go on down the line long enough to hand it to King Jesus and let him refashion it as he pleases. That, friends, is the first step to you as a Christian making a political impact. Make sense? You with me so far? Okay. That's number one. Number two. Put your primary political hopes and invest politically first in a church. Let me shorten that. Put your primary political hopes first in a church. Again, that might sound like a strange thing to say, right? Why, why would I say, put your primary political hopes first in a church? What, what, what's going on there? I mean, after all, I think many Christians in America continue to put their primary political hopes in a party, election, nomination, what? Any number of things. That's where our primary political hopes naturally fall. Remember what I started with, we can't get co-opted. Where are your primary political hopes going to be? And I'm saying they should be, well, first in King Jesus, but here now in, in your church. What do I mean by that? Well, since the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the 17th century, you know, folks, Christian folks like us, would often talk about America as the city on the hill. So John Winthrop said that about the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Kennedy would eventually pick up that language. Reagan, Clinton, Bush, Obama. It's become just a kind of common way of referring to America as a city on a hill. Of course, who did Jesus talk about as the city on the hill? The church? Or, Or think of those glorious, wonderful words at the very end of Lincoln's second inaugural address, if you come to my city and you kind of go to the Lincoln Memorial and you walk up the steps and you look to your right, you see the second inaugural address. And the, the very last few words, he talks about achieving and cherishing a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Just stop and think about those words for a second. Beautiful words. Achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace with ourselves, us, just and lasting peace with ourselves, and with all nations. Beautiful, right? Well, friends, where are we going to first 
achieve a just and lasting peace with ourselves and with all nations. Well, isn't it among the people who are commanded to go to all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything here and out here that he commanded? Isn't it in the church where Lincoln's hopes are first going to come true? Conversion makes us citizens of God's kingdom and it places us inside of embassies of that kingdom and puts us to work as ambassadors of that kingdom. In other words, your local church should be a model nation, a model society of what true justice and true righteousness looks like, right? It's within the context of your own local church where we first learn to love our enemies, where we first beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks to take the the language from Isaiah, right? And together, in our life together, where we're achieving and cherishing this just and lasting peace with ourselves, that we then call to the nations and commend to the nations and their governments and their prime ministers and their senators a just and lasting peace. And we call them with the, with the light of our words and the saltiness of our lives, the distinctness of our lives, right? I love Michael Horton's reflections on the political nature of our message, the gospel message, as well as our work. Here's what he says. He says, as a minister... I am called regularly by God to make a political speech. Tom, every Sunday, you're making a political speech, a deeply partisan political speech, he says. However, it is not to rally the troops in defense of Christendom against the infidels of various sorts. It divides not between Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, but between Christ and anti-Christ. Preaching, it would seem, is political. King of kings, right there. Hey, king, he's your king. Evangelism is political. Hey, next door neighbor, hey, friend at work. He's king. He's king of our kings. Again, friend, make no mistake. The principalities and powers of this world want to co-opt us. They want to say, we are a part of their game. Just, Just today, I have four daughters, just today, the, begin, the morning began with two daughters going at it, okay, the, the uh, 13-year-old and the 11-year-old, and she did this, no, she did that, and I was called in to resolve it, and what were both of them trying to do? They were both trying to enlist me. They were both trying to get me on their side, right? Dad, don't you understand that, well, she did this, and well, I, yeah, I did do that, but, but the reason was, no, 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 Dad, let me tell you how it really went right? They're both trying to co-opt and enlist me. And what is my job? Is my job as a father to get in and be like completely on one side or the other? Or is my job to listen to both and say, that's true, that sounds true, but I'm not sure it is, and carefully adjudicate because I'm going to a different agenda. 
I'm not determined by this daughter's agenda, and I'm not determined by that daughter's agenda. I'm trying to bring a light and truth to, to everything in that situation. Do you see? And the parties and the news channels and the principalities and the powers and all the forces of hell want you to hear things that are true. Hey, that's true. That's just. I must be over here. But in the process, what have you done? You've been co-opted. You've sold out. You're now seeking the kingdoms of this world because you're living right here instead of the kingdom of Christ. And so every week, he's making friends. Jesus is king. Let me open his book and tell you what our king says, right? And every week we go out and we speak those words to each other, husband, wife, parent, child, friend to friend, friend to neighbor. And we're representing a different king, A Christian's political posture is not finally, hey, we need to withdraw from politics. A Christian's political posture is not, hey, we need to get in and dominate and win no matter what. Rather, a Christian's posture is always going to be represent. I'm here to represent the king. That's what we're doing. Which means, friends, to some extent, we need to shift our focus from redeeming the nation to being a redeemed nation. To from transforming the culture to first and foremost being a transformed culture. Now, church and state are distinct institutions. I'll get to that in a little bit. They must, I think from Scripture, I think we would say they must remain separate. I would not argue for blending church and state. But recognize that what we do in church is profoundly political. And it has a political threat. And that's why you're persecuted. They see the political threat of the things that you would say and believe, right? Sometimes they praise, sometimes they oppose. And not only that, understand that the the public square is a deeply religious battleground of gods. Everybody's there on behalf of their God. These things are, these things are in conflict. So let me give you, let me give you a taste of what I mean about the political nature of the church when I say it's your primary political hope. Let me tell you a story about my friend Charles. Charles, it's not his real name, is a Washington, D.C. speechwriter. He writes speeches for party chairmen. If you watched the 2016 Republican National Convention, you would have heard a speech of his. He he, uh, writes speeches for cabinet ministers. Charles' work puts him at the very center of D.C. politics, right? National politics. Charles is also friends with Freddie. Freddie, also a member of the church, was homeless, became a Christian, and joined our church. And yet, after a few years, the church discovered that Freddie was lying to members and stealing from members to support his drug addiction. And so we pursued Freddie, and eventually he just, just said, no, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I didn't do that, no, I didn't do that, and, but we found he continued to do that. All that to say, he wasn't repenting. And so on one very sad day, we removed him as an act of discipline from the church. And that's when Charles got involved in Freddie's life. And Charles started meeting with him and reading the Bible with him and calling him to repentance. And little by little, by God's grace, Freddie began to repent and confessing his sin, 
and fighting against the addiction, fighting against the old sins and putting those things off. Until one glorious evening in our church members meeting, Freddie came up before the congregation and had his confession and he read his confession to the church. Church, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I've lied and I stole and I had my idol of, of, of addiction and I'm, I'm asking you to forgive me. And it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. We received him back into fellowship in the church. Okay, here is the GDP-sized question. It's not about Freddie, it's actually about Charles. Who is, or which Charles is the political Charles? Is it the speechwriter or the disciple-maker? Let me, let, me, let me put it another way. Which Charles deals with welfare policy, housing policy, criminal reform, education? Both. In fact, Charles the speechwriter would tell you that it's Charles the disciple-maker which forms and fashions and gives shape to the speechwriter. It's the same man living, the same God ruling, the same principles of justice and righteousness applying, the same politics in play. And as Charles and Freddie began to reconcile around the grace and the righteousness and the justice of God, and as the whole congregation was called into that and participated in that, in affirming and reaffirming and disciplining and, and disciplining and then reaffirming our brother Freddie, friends, there is a model society for the nations. O oh, nations of the earth, this is what you're called to: grace and mercy and righteousness and justice. Do you see? That brings us to a third step. We must learn to be before we do. We must learn to be before we do. So if our primary political hopes rest first in the church, we must learn to be before we do. So my church, is, as you know, is in the Washington, D.C. area, and it's filled with young people like Charles who move to D.C. because they want to make a difference. And... That's wonderful, and they're working in various spheres of governments, and the work they do matters, it's important. But as one of their elders, one of their pastors, I have to say to them, don't tell me you're interested in politics if you are not pursuing a just and righteous politics with the other members of your church, young and old, black and white, Asian, Hispanic, poor and wealthy. Are you pursuing a righteous politics there? Because if not, I'm not sure what you mean when you say you're interested in politics. That's where it should begin. So Paul asked the Jews of his day, Romans chapter 2, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? Let me ask a few questions of my own. You who call for immigration reform, do you practice hospitality? with your fellow church members or people who show up who look different than you ethnically or nationally? You who speak against abortion, do you also embrace the single mothers in this congregation? Do you encourage adoption? You who talk about welfare reform, do you give to the needy in the church? 
you who care about the economy and the job market. In your concerns about the job market, do you obey your own boss? Not as a people pleaser, but as you would obey Christ. You who type out your opinions on Facebook and Twitter and social media, do you receive the brother or sister who has different opinions than you with a glad heart at the Lord's table? When I say we must be before we do, I'm saying we as local churches need to live out the justice and righteousness that God calls to before we go out there and tell the nations how they should live. What would you think about the person showing up in your Sunday school class to teach on parenting when you know their own kids are neglected or abused? That doesn't make sense. So churches, how are we going to make a political impact? We've got to be before we do. Remember what I said? Start before, before we think about transforming the nation. We've got to be a transformed nation, right? Step four. Let the state do its job and let the church do its job and those are separate jobs. Let the state do its job and let the church do its job and those are separate jobs. There's a whole lot we could say here. I'm only going to say two things briefly for time's sake. Here's the first thing. We have to, do, we have to know how to do two things at once on the, or say two things at once. We have to know how to say the beginning of our politics is Jesus is king. And we also, at the same time, have to know how to say, I think the Bible teaches the separation of church and state. Let's go back to render to Caesar. What is Caesar and what is God is God's. I, I think there is an, a separating. So the Jews would have been thinking, don't we want David on the throne? Right? And, and Jesus is like, no, you need to submit to Caesar. Okay, so, so church and state are separate. Religion and politics are not, but church and state are separate. But what you have throughout church history is Christians abandoning one of those two phrases. So throughout Christendom, what do you have? You have a bunch of people saying Jesus is king and well, we get rid of separation of church and state. Whereas these days, the more common thing to do is to say, oh, we need separation of church and state. So, you know, Jesus is king. That sounds like theonomy. You know, it sounds like you're trying to impose your religion. Well, no, somehow we have to hold on to both of those things. And that, that's up. Right now, the, uh, the, the hearings with uh, Amy Coney, Comey, Coney, Comey, Barrett. Um, that's what they're going to be throwing at her. So you're against separation of church and state. And I think we have good answers to that question. No, I can simultaneously say Jesus is king and affirm this, but that, that's a longer conversation, but it's very going to be right at the heart of a lot of what we're, we're struggling with, with these days. And here's the second thing that I want to say about the separate jobs of church and government. And this is kind of the answer to... Uh, the challenge uh, against, say, Barrett, uh, candidate Barrett. Um, we typically understood, misunderstood what the separation of church and state are. We have typically described it as the separation of religion and politics, or the separation of, of uh, uh, morality and politics. So I was speaking, I was teaching a group of college students who were in D.C., Christian college students in D.C. for internships, and uh, I was talking about some of these things, and one of the students raised his hand and said to me, so are, are you saying, uh, Jonathan, that we should impose our morality on people? And I said, okay, na name for me one law that doesn't impose someone's morality, just, just one, that doesn't impose morality. The class stopped and thought, and they scratched their heads, 
and then kind of a chuckle. That's what law does. Law imposes a moral judgment. Every law ever. Even laws that say you've got to drive on the right side of the road, unlike those crazy British driving on the wrong side, says human lives are valuable and need to be protected and we need order. Right? Every law imposes a moral judgment. The separation of church and state is not the same thing uh, as the separation of religion and politics or morality and politics. Saying it is works great for the non-Christian. So, uh, another clear example is, back, back to Barrett, is when she was being considered as a circuit court judge, Senator Dianne Feinstein on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and you're going to be hearing this phrase a lot lately, or these, these days, uh, objecting to uh, Judge Barrett's, or nominee Barrett's, uh, uh, candidacy for circuit court judge, Dianne Feinstein said, your dogma lives loudly within you, meaning your Roman Catholic beliefs, your dogma lives loudly within you. That's a concern. Well, what's the response? What's the right response to Senator Feinstein? It, it, I think I heard the beginning. Doesn't yours also? Does your not dogma not live and determine everything about you and what you think and how you vote? It's true of all of us. You vote this on federal funding for national parks. What's behind that? Well, behind that is a view of justice. And what's behind your view of justice? It's a worldview. It's a God or gods. Or big G God, little G God. Our God or our gods always determine what we think is just, which in turn ter- ter- determines how we vote whether we're talking about same-sex marriage or abortion or funding for NASA or tax rates, you, you, you don't leave your religion. Nobody does. It's impossible. But what the, when the non-Christian says separation of church and state, what they're saying is, hey, if you learn that lesson from when he got up here and he opened his book and said, God says you shall not murder, I don't, I don't want to hear that because you're getting it from your book. It's like, okay, well, so does that mean I need to submit myself to your God? Your gods, your idols? You've never heard of the separation of idolatry in state. Lucky for you, too bad for me. The separation of church and state is not the separation of our moral views and the state. What is the separation of church and state from the Bible? What it is, is that God says, I give one job to the state, the power of the sword. And I give another job to the church, the power of keys, separate jobs, separate, sometimes overlapping jurisdictions, different hats that one would wear. That's what it is. Now, obviously, the non-Christian is not going to understand that, but I'm helping you as believers. Okay, as we think about this idea of separation of church and state, we got to start with Scripture. Now, when we get into the conversations with non-Christians, we've got to figure out how to make wise arguments. That's true. So you understand yourself, you need to understand what is the power of the sword? What is the power of the keys? Now here's the problem. We can't expect Christians to understand, I'm sorry, non-Christians to understand what the the authority of the church is, but slightly more worrying is, how many Christians would you think are able to explain what is the authority of a church? 
Is that something you could do? Well, these are the very things we need to be discipled in and to study and to learn if we're going to understand what the separation of church and state are so that we understand what a right political engagement is. Make sense? So that's kind of like, here's your homework. What is the the authority of the state? What is the authority of the church? Let's talk about the state. Here's point five, lesson five. When you enter the public square, vote for justice as defined by the Noahic covenant. When you enter the public square, vote for justice as defined by the Noahic covenant. Probably the most common question I I hear on when we come to these matters is, is questions of who should I vote for. Okay, well, to answer who should you vote for, let's back up and think, okay, what did God establish governments to do? What is the power of the sword for? As Americans, when we encounter that question, we think, okay, we, is it, isn't, isn't government exist for the sake of securing our rights, freedom, and equality? I mean, isn't that what the American experiment is all about, for the sake of securing rights, freedom, and, a, and equality? The, the trouble is people, of course, mean very different things by those words. How about the right to an abortion? How about freedom to define one's own gender? How about marriage equality. Now, I happen to believe that rights, freedoms, and equality are biblical ideas, but they're not self-defining ideas. We're to pursue instead a just set of rights, a just set of freedoms, a just equality. In other words, justice comes first, you see. Right comes before rights. Pay attention to the S. Saying something is right comes before, are those rights right? Or are those rights not right? So I need an understanding of what's right and what's just. Someone has to make rights right. Make sense? So as we think about Government, if it doesn't, we got Q&A time. So as we got to think about government, one of the first things we have to do is think, okay, what is righteousness? What is justice? That is the government's primary job. Uh, listen to 2 Samuel 8.15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness to his people. 1 Kings 3.28, Israel stood in awe of the king, because they perceived the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Queen of Sheba from another nation shows up at the establishment of the temple and says to, sorry, later, not at the temple, but later she says to, to, to Solomon, chapter 10, verse 9, because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Or Proverbs 29, 4, by justice, a king builds up the land. Okay, so, so how, do we, how do we define justice? Well, I think we go back to Genesis 9-6, which says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So there's your coercive authority. There's your power of the sword. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, on what basis? For man was made in God's own image. So right there we have the standard of justice, protecting the image of God in 
people. Noahic justice is a protectionist or preservative justice. The, the, the dominion mandate, chapter 9, continues, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, so we're, we're to be fruitful and multiply, but now we're post-fall. Got Cain killing Abel. So to preserve the creation order and to preserve people from killing each other, God makes two provisions. First, he says, I, I'm going to put my own bow of war down, the rainbow. I'm not going to destroy the world again by a flood. And so that you don't kill each other or, to, or to minimize that, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. I'm giving a coercive authority to people to exercise for the implementation of justice. Which means, friends, everything a government does, every law it makes, every courtroom ruling it declares, every executive agency code it enforces, it should do for the purpose of protecting and affirming the citizens, its citizens as God imagers. Its work of establishing and upholding justice in these ways must always be measured by the standard of the imago dei, of the image of God, which is to say anything that harms or hurts or oppresses or exploits or hinders or tramples upon or degrades or threatens human beings as God imagers arguably becomes a target of government opposition. And I would say by implication, Anything that aids or abets or promotes or encourages a set of conditions that contributes to the ability of God imagers to live out this vocation, this job of imaging God. Anything that helps that is at least a candidate for governmental encouragement. Or as Paul says, punish the bad, reward the good. In Romans 13, or Martin Luther King Jr., I think, captured the basic idea when he said, any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality, or just say, image of godness, is unjust. I'm at 7 o'clock. I'm trying to figure out. I'm going to go a little long, maybe five extra minutes. Okay, so why does government do these things? Let me say this and then I'll conclude. Why does government do these things? Well, first, to establish justice and to secure peace and order. And then secondly, so that people are free to worship God. Now, this is a big deal. You've got to get this. Genesis 9 and the preserving of human life comes before Genesis 12 and the call to Abraham and the beginning of the plan of salvation for a reason. i got to protect your life so that you can find your way to God. At least that's how Paul puts it. Acts 17. And he made from one man every nation to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So I'm, 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 He's made from one man every nation and, and their borders, and their governments, so that they should seek God and perhaps find their way toward Him and find Him. Or as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 1-4, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Let me unpack that. So we, we pray for our kings. Why do we pray for our kings? 
so that we live peaceful and quiet lives. Why is that good? That's good because God wants everyone to be saved. So the king is establishing a a protected, orderly space so that people are then free to be saved. In other words, friends, let's go back to the question, who do you vote for? Will you vote for the candidate, the party, the ballot measure, not the one that thinks its way is the way of salvation, but the one that realizes its work is a prerequisite to salvation? You see? It's, it's the party, the candidate, the ballot measure that builds the streets so that you can drive to church. That protects the womb so that you can live and hear the gospel. That insists on fair lending and housing practices so that you can own a home and show hospitality to non-Christian friends. That works for education so that your kids know how to read the Bible. That protects the marriage and the family so that you have examples of husbands loving wives as Christ loved the church and, and pointing to Him. That polices the streets and does so fairly, avoiding brutality so that people are protected and can live in harmony, sharing the gospel and modeling Christ's love for the church. Now, you might disagree with any one of the examples I just gave. I'm not trying to make that point so much as I'm trying to give you a grid for about who you would vote for. Who would you vote for? What is a government called to do by God? It's called to provide peace and order and justice so that the church can get on with the work of the Great Commission. And the government that supports and protects that, think of Pharaoh at the time of Joseph, is a good government. Whereas a government that opposes that, think of Pharaoh at the time of Moses, is a bad government. You see? I'm going to skip number six. Let me conclude. Here's how you make a political impact. Repent of your sins, put your trust in Christ, join a church, live out a just and righteous politics, as then you go into the public square modeling that justice and righteousness and representing King Jesus in everything you do there in providing a platform for people to come to salvation. And that's why my church cares about politics. So I think of member Jane who found herself homeless and because of mental difficulties she refused our help and she refused to be put into safe housing and she went in a park and she slept on a bench and member Luther went and slept on a nearby park bench because he was concerned about her welfare. We care about welfare. We care about tax policy, so I think of Carlos, who spends his working days explaining to U.S. Congress the tax implications of, of potential proposed legislation, and who spends his evenings working with a family with their crisis in their taxes, and working with their creditors and debtors. He, he cares, and we care about taxes and tax policy. My church also cares about America's race problem or at least our own race problem. 
So one Sunday morning, it was announced that I would be giving a talk in the evening on, on race in our, in our church. And Patty came up to me afterwards, and she said, Jonathan, I'm so glad you're going to be talking about race tonight. Can I, can, I, can I be honest with you? I don't like black people. I know that's wrong. But my heart really struggles with that. I get really uncomfortable. I don't like things about them. And I said, Patty, thank you so much for, for sharing that with me. Do you, do you, know, um, do you know Joe and his wife? And, and Joe's an African-American man. She said, yeah. I said, tell you what, call Joe and his wife, invite yourself over to dinner, and tell them what you just told me. And she said, are you serious? And I said, I think so, yeah. I wouldn't have done that with just any person. Joe is a mature and his wife, mature, godly people, I knew they could handle it, okay? To my surprise, she did it. <laughs> Not to my surprise, it went exactly as I expected. Joe and his wife loved her and forgave her and embraced her. And she, a little bit, repented of that racism that day. And in so doing, Joe and his wife and Patty modeled for the nations something different. They weren't co-opted by this world. They were co-opted by the kingdom of Christ as citizens, as, as brothers and sisters together, right? We care about America or at least our race problems. In other words, friends, real politics begins not with our political opinions, not with what we're doing on social media, not finally what we're even doing at the ballot box. Real politics begins with our personal affections and what we're all about and whose agenda we're pursuing. And specifically, in the context of a, of a congregation of people who are different, awkward, step on our toes, don't show up on time, offend us, say things, and give us all the reasons in the world not to like them, but we forgive them and we seek to put on justice and righteousness together. Ten minute break? Or five minutes, should make it short. I'll, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll make the next talk shorter. I have less to say with that. So 10-minute break, and then a shorter talk? Great. All right, see you in a few.